Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey everyone, it's David Pluff. Welcome to 2020. The year of reckoning is finally here. We obviously uh, enter this year with something we weren't anticipating, which is uh, the uh, assassination of General Soleimani and um, potential uh, long-running conflict with Iran. So um, my guest today is going to speak to that. So I'll come back to that. We also enter uh, the new year finally uh, getting close to actual voting and caucusing. And um, there were some polls that came out in the last couple of days, um, if they're accurate, that suggest a really fascinating race in Iowa. You've got three candidates, uh, Sanders, uh, Mayor Pete, and Joe Biden all at 23% in this uh, CBS poll. Uh, New Hampshire, similarly close with Sanders with a, with a two or three point lead. So, you know, what's fascinating about that is um, we could be in a situation where if, if all three of those candidates, and you had, you know, Klobuchar and, and Senator Warren back a bit, um, but but still plenty of time for them to to gain more momentum, but um, where, you know, we could potentially have one candidate break away and, and win in Iowa and New Hampshire by a big margin. That uh, historically has happened. But if that doesn't happen, you're, the ordering here is going to be really important. Um, and you could be, you know, you could have three or even four candidates separated by only a few percentage points. But obviously, the bragging rights and the momentum will come to those who either came in first or outperformed expectations. And so for those of you who are following this race closely in Iowa, you know, paying close attention to where the candidates are going, what part of the state is going to be really important. Uh, are any of them uh, decreasing their time in Iowa because they they don't see a win in the offing, but, you know, they, they want to make sure that they're doing what they need to do in New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada our candidates even here in January beginning to spend time in some of the March states, uh, Georgia, Texas, Florida, California, uh, Illinois. So uh, Jonathan Martin from the New York Times was my guest last week, and, and he said, you know, watch their freedom and watch their wallet. So that's what we need to do. Where are they spending their time uh, and where are they spending their money? And I think with the exception of Mike Bloomberg, who obviously is planting his flag in, in the March states, I think the rest of these candidates, my advice would be they have no option but to go all in in Iowa. Uh, because uh, if you come in fifth place or fourth place, you know, maybe there's a scenario where you can be the nominee, but it's it's very unlikely. So, you know, winners tend to win and losers tend to lose a lot of momentum. It's, it's a simple statement, but it's true. And so I think that uh, things get real right now. Um, we have a debate next week, um, next Tuesday in Iowa, which will be uh, a critically important debate. It doesn't look like we thought, you know, a few weeks ago there'd be an impeachment trial happening. So the folks running who are senators might not be able to participate. That doesn't look like that's going to be the case. So that'll be a really important debate. Uh, as of now, it looks like we'll be down to five candidates. So um, I think the last debate um, definitely was advantaged by having a smaller stage. This one will have even a smaller stage if there's five or six folks. And, you know, this is a really, really important opportunity pre-Iowa to make your case. So um, I would imagine the way the candidates have responded to the situation in Iran will be front and center. There'll continue to be a lot of debate around health care, the type of change candidates are trying to bring about, electability, but this will be really crucial. And so I think um, the preparation for this debate is going to need to be much more serious than any of them have done to date. Exactly what they're trying to accomplish. Are they trying to uh, contrast with somebody else in the field or the entire field? Um, where are they running into problems in Iowa, New Hampshire, and what questions do they need to answer for voters? So as much as they're in a sprint now to Iowa, Candidates need to supply the right amount of time and preparation to prep for the debate because you do not want to bomb in this debate. And again, I think debates uh, tend to be overcovered in terms of their actual impact in the race. But if you bomb, it can really hurt you. And, and obviously, if someone has an incandescently great night, um, you know, perhaps it'll, it'll give them a little boost. But um, that'll be an important moment. Um, and, you know, we're getting close to the closing arguments. So really, as you get into the middle of the month and the, the third week of January, um, you know, candidates are going to kind of have their final stump speech for Iowa. Um, they're going to have their final sense of their schedule. They're going to have their final sense of in Iowa's 99 counties, 
you know, where's their support coming from? Uh, where can they maximize support in, in certain counties or parts of counties? And, and where are they just trying to minimize damage? So, you know, this is, is getting as real as it gets. So um, I know you'll be following along closely. My guest today is Samantha Power, a uh, former colleague of mine, uh, just a brilliant uh, person who is, you know, one of the world's leading experts on genocide and human rights served in the Obama administration, first as a senior member of the National Security Council, then as the ambassador to the United Nations. Um, she has a wonderful new book um, out a few months ago called The Education of an Idealist, which I'd highly encourage you to, to check out if you haven't. But I want to talk to Samantha today both about the situation in Iran as she sees it substantively, um, her take on some of the likely scenarios the world reaction uh, that we've seen to date, but also this is happening in the middle of a presidential campaign. So get her take about how the candidates, uh, particularly in the Democratic primary, need to be approaching this, both in terms of the briefings they're getting, um, understanding that this is a very fluid situation. So I think a really benefit both from Samantha's uh, just really you know brilliant take on the situation and, and where it could go. And as all of us as Americans, first and foremost, are concerned about that before we get to the politics. Uh, but then also her sense of how, uh, if you're in one of these democratic campaigns, uh, you need to factor in the events in Iran. So Samantha Power will be with us next. Samantha Power, thank you so much for joining us on Campaign HQ. Delighted to be here, David. So let's start um, just with your sense of I guess where things stand vis-a-vis uh, Iran, uh, we're now, uh, you know, a few days after the action against General Soleimani. And from your standpoint, um, where this could go, I mean, for, for Americans who are listening to this, what are the, what are the potential outcomes here um, that we could see um, in terms of a retaliation from, from Iran? Um, well, first, just the, the consequences up to this point, of course, range from Iran announcing formally that it was abandoning the nuclear deal. That deal was in dire straits, of course, even before the formal announcement. Um, inside Iran, a level of unity that has not been seen in uh, easily, you know, more than a decade. Uh, you had seen the most substantial protests in Iran um, in, in decades, uh, just a few months ago. Um, and now the unity that entails 20-mile-long uh, commemorative uh, marches and funeral services and so forth for General Soleimani. So, so a degree of, at least on the surface, unity uh, within Iran where moderates will be very, very marginalized. And in Iraq as well, uh, people forget because of the focus of on events inside Iran, but Iraq was seeing the most substantial protests around Iranian dominance, a real frustration even among Shia that Iran was calling the shots, dictating what the government was doing. Um, and there again, now a unanimous uh, call by the parliament for U.S. forces to leave. I do think we're already seeing that be walked back. And uh, there's a recognition in Iraq that the Iraqi national forces don't have the wherewithal uh, to be able to respond to a resurgent ISIS if that were to happen. And so what you're likely to see are severe constraints on the U.S. presence and probably some drawdown um, for political safe face-saving, if nothing else, uh, but a desire to keep U.S. troops there. But of course, those troops now, uh, which had been operating in the same stew as these Iranian-backed militia who Soleimani directed, uh, now those troops are much more vulnerable, even more vulnerable than they were uh, before the operation last week. Um, in terms of uh, where this goes, it's very hard to know what it lies in the head and the hearts of the people who will be orchestrating Iran's response. Um, we see from the supreme leader indirectly uh, what he calls the desire for a direct and proportional attack on American interests. Also, he was explicit apparently in the internal meetings. We don't normally get leaks out of Iranian National Security Council meetings, so I suppose we should take this with a grain of salt, but that he wants these attacks uh, is, uh, carried out openly by Iranian forces. So this is very different than how Soleimani did business over the years, which was through this shadowy network. Uh, the foothold that Iran has through its Quds Force, through its Revolutionary Guard, through its intelligence operatives around the world is really elaborate. Um, and it's not only in the obvious countries where the U.S. has uh, embassy presence and commercial interests you know, like Lebanon, 
like Iraq, uh, other countries in the region, but also even in South America, even in the United States itself, a plot was broken up uh, where it looked like Iranian operatives were intent on trying to assassinate the Saudi ambassador several years ago. And so it's very hard to know where they would strike um, what they deem proportional to something of this magnitude, again, from their perspective. Uh, but, you know, this is where the concerns that many of us have that Trump doesn't see through or think through or plan against contingencies and consequences are so worrying. I mean, we hope that inside the Situation Room, there's round-the-clock contingency meetings happening about how to harden our embassies, how to draw down vulnerable U.S. personnel uh, in, in places where we know uh, Iran has uh, a reach, which is, again, in many, many parts of the world. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a very dangerous moment. Right. So that's very helpful. So you mentioned the Situation Room, um, which you've spent a lot of time in, both as a member of the National Security Council and as the United Nations ambassador. So I'd love to ask you a couple things. So one is, you know, you mentioned what you hope to be seeing. So, so ideally, what is going on right now in the Situation Room, um, you know, in the State Department, in the Defense Department? And then secondly, because I agree with you, one of the concerns about Trump is I'm not sure he's playing um, checkers, much less chess. So I think one of the things that's always scared me about Trump is, you know, uh, you know, uh, I've observed that room. I've not been, um, you know, as involved as you have is there's a mythology out there that, you know, advisors can sort of control a president and obviously good presidents listen to advisors and, and can have huge impact. But it's a really lonely room, right? I mean, one person sitting at the end of the table and makes the decision and all the levers of government um, salute and, and execute their whims. And so I'm just curious kind of what – the machinery, how you think that ought to work. But, uh, you know, the question really is, will Trump listen to it? I think it's uh, precisely the right set of questions. I mean, for starters, the machinery is just not what it has traditionally been um, over many, many decades. Um, so it, it used to be the case that you had this elaborate process, you know, these acronyms well, uh, you know, interagency policy committee meetings where assistant secretary level people would begin to formulate ideas, analysis, tee up options, then it would go to deputies, they would pour over them, see the holes, the gaps, then it would go to principals in, in an emergency circumstance like, let's say, that which has been unfolding over the course of the last couple of weeks in Iraq, that process would be compressed. But you would definitely have deputies, and by that I mean deputy secretary level individuals, so very senior people in the government, uh, running you know, meetings uh, day in, day out. I mean, and again, not just on the question of what our embassy security posture looks like, but also what's our diplomatic back channel? How are we managing to do whatever it is we're doing, whether in advance of the assassination or in the in the aftermath, in as collective a company as we can muster? So you always are stronger internationally if you have other countries by your side. So a lot, you know, a lot of the diplomatic legwork, um, the planning for that goes on in those meetings. It's in those meetings that often you will do kind of de facto red teaming where, you know, people will raise a flare about the kinds of things that, that can go wrong. But in order for people to raise their hands, and you know this, David, uh, they've got to feel confident that dissenting viewpoints, critical viewpoints are welcome. And there would be, from what we can see, at least from the outside, almost no likelihood that that, that culture exists. So, so first of all, those meetings that I've described uh, shut down almost entirely uh, over the course of this administration. The so-called paper process, and I f forgive, this is so wonky and bureaucratic. I never myself years ago thought that I would be so immersed in, in this lingo, but the paper process is how you get people with uh, very different perspectives on an issue to weigh in. So, for example, uh, a paper that goes to the president should have input from his legislative affairs experts, his lawyers, um, his, of course, his regional specialists, his nonproliferation specialists, his intelligence experts, his terrorism experts. I mean, this is, you would think that all of these people would sort of be looking at this roughly the same way. You can't imagine 
the diversity of views and the insight that people bring who bring those different pockets of expertise as you want to think through in a in a kind of composite way uh, what you want to next do and how you want to look ahead, as you say, five, uh, ten steps uh, forward. So those kinds of processes don't exist. Also, of course, you know, people tend to talk about the the hemorrhaging of talent and expertise from the U.S. government in a in a different set of laments than they talk about the Iran process. But these two very unfortunate um, crises uh, merge here. Uh, and so you've seen some of the top Iran experts in the intelligence community and the national security community depart the U.S. government because they felt so marginalized. It was such a political process to get out of the Iran nuclear deal. As you know, countless officials testified up on Capitol Hill in the Trump administration because they were under oath. Uh, that the deal was working, officials in the Defense Department and the intelligence community, uh, they were freezed out, many of them, or in the case, for example, of the Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coats, he finally came to the point where he resigned. Uh, so often his testimony was in contradiction with what uh, the administration did. And so you would worry, David, both about whether those individuals who have that thought in their head of, this doesn't sound so good, I'm not sure we were thinking this through, whether they would raise their hands. But even beyond that, um, you know, whether there are venues uh, where expertise and, and people who would have those kinds of instincts about the kinds of things that could go wrong or who the players are even on the ground where those voices would be heard. So across the board, I would be very, very worried about the absence of guardrails, the absence of dissent, the absence of process and contingency planning. And, and we saw it. I mean, you saw it in the Defense Department's letter that leaked uh, this week, you know, where initially uh, the, the letter was leaked saying that we were planning our withdrawal and then the defense secretary had to come out and talk to the press and say, no, no, sorry. You saw it in the in the first statement where the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard was was misnamed. You know, the acronym was misspelled out in in uh, and referred to not as the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, but as the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. I mean, little things, but little things bespeak big things. And, and those are big concerns we should have. Oh, yeah. That's the frightening thing. I mean, you know, the situation was frightening enough, but listen, listening to you talk about, um, you know, the lack of process, all the personnel who've left, um, you do get a sense that there's not going to be many courageous voices, right? They, they just want to basically ratify what, the, what their leader has done here. So it's, it's very scary. I'm curious, you know, one of the backdrops of this, both substantively, but I would, I would think both politically, is the Iraq war and and you know, the clear fatigue in this country, um, um, I think that both at the leadership level, but certainly with our citizens, uh, with with ongoing war. But, but from your standpoint, if we end up in the worst situation, which is some extended formal um, conflict with Iran, um, what would be similar to Iraq in terms of its consequences? And what, what do you think would be different? Trump seems so alert uh, to the war fatigue. He's, he has portrayed himself so routinely as the president who's going to get us out of wars. You know, he has uh, played himself, of course, even though he's now been in Washington for three years. Op- he's got a funny way of showing it, by the way. But, yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, well, I'll come to that. But, <laughs> but his self-identity, and you know, Lord knows what goes on in his mind, but is very tied up in this idea that you know I'm I'm not a war starting kind of guy, <laughs> um, and thus you know even when with John Bolton's departure, you know I think that was framed uh, for Trump. It'll be interesting how these these streams merge. You know now that Bolton's the potential Bolton testifying in the impeachment inquiry is back is back in the news. You know whether how the shadow of Bolton kind of hangs over these Iran discussions, and how Bolton himself is influenced in any testimony he might give by his own uh, sort of rapturous enthusiasm for the killing of of Soleimani. Um, but to your question, I think that Trump will very much seek uh, to move forward um, in a manner that doesn't look like the commencement of full-scale war. And so that, of course, includes the obvious uh, Trumpian tendency to avoid 
any kind of formal engagement with Congress and to claim that the authorization to use military force from 2001 applies in this case and in the case of you know even an escalation that would go forward, that will continue, I think, to be his claim uh, to avoid uh, congressional meddling, um, but also to keep this out of the public eye, to, to sort of br- uh, lump it with other quote-unquote counterterrorism operations that are ongoing in places like Yemen, Libya, Somalia. I think he'll want to put it in that category uh, and very much keep it out of the endless wars, forever war category of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, of course, as as the generals like to say, the enemy gets a vote. <laughs> and so that wh- whether, whether that will be a sustainable – I mean, again, this is all speculative. We don't know what Iran will do next. Uh, Trump himself has you know, tweet, put himself in a real box by saying any attack on any American will be met with disproportionate force. Um, and so you know, he's trying to deter, but at the same time, he's boxing himself in politically. I mean, people speculate uh, and, or have asserted that one of the reasons he went for this very extreme option uh, on this menu of options in the wake of the, the siege of the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad was that he felt he had been ridiculed and caricatured for being seen to have stood down in the last escalatory cycle with Iran. And so if that's kind of in his mind, you know, he'll be very nervous about, about pulling back or, or very apprehensive, I should say, about pulling back from, from the brink. But again, I think he will try to make it seem limited responsive, you know, the the chronologies, David, will be uh, badly distorted. You know, of course, the clock will only start with Soleimani's, uh, Soleimani-backed attack on a U.S. contractor. The clock will not start in Trump's timeline with the U.S. decision to pull out of the nuclear deal, which is when the rocket attacks on U.S. personnel in Iraq resumed. There had been no rocket attacks while the JCPOA was in place. That will, of course, not be part of uh, Trump's uh, narrative. So even though we don't know where this is going, I think we, you're the, I feel like I'm talking to Michael Jordan about how to play basketball, but but if you're Trump, you will want to, you know, keep this in, in a frame of limited military engagements, all framed within the, the realm of self-defense. And under no circumstances do you want to see if you're Trump, large numbers of ground forces being deployed. And so it's not a coincidence that while you're at what you alluded to earlier, Trump has, despite billing himself as the the end of wars president, he has deployed now close to 20,000 more troops uh, to different theaters, uh, many, of course, in response to escalation with Iran, an earlier deployment of uh, several thousand troops to Saudi Arabia, deployments, of course, to guard uh, oil infrastructure in Syria after withdrawing uh, troops initially uh, from northern Syria, and now 3,500 troops uh, to strengthen our force posture in the region. That Those kinds of incremental deployments, I think, would be his preferred course. We all remember uh, the heartbreaking scenes of of you know thousands of Americans at airports around this country being deployed in advance of uh, George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq, I think Trump would seek to do this incrementally and to kind of bury the lead on on what is happening. Right. So I think you're spot on, and and you, uh, I loved your um, comment that uh, the generals say the enemy gets a vote. I've, I've, I think one of the the real disadvantages Trump's had as president, and one of the reasons I think that. A lot of leaders around the world would like him to stay. You know, the Putins of the world, Kim Jong Un, the Saudis, is his his motivations and his political necessities are so obvious. I mean, I think you just spelled it out. So the Iranians, of course, know that. <laughs> so now, it's not doesn't mean necessarily that they say we're going to drag Trump into a full scale war because they've got equities as well. But how can can a country like Iran and their leaders leverage that knowledge that? This is what Trump wants to avoid. This is kind of the storyboarding he wants to engage in, at least as it relates to Fox News. And how can we interrupt that or kind of get in his head? It's a great, great question. I mean, I think, I guess the one caution I would offer is I completely agree with your premise that the sort of algorithm of Trump's psyche is <laughs> as transparent around the world. You know, it's undo anything. If you mention that Obama was for it, he'll be against it. Um, and if it enriches him financially or politically, he'll be for it. Okay, so that's that's pretty straightforward. And in the context of political enrichment, the corollary of that is uh, America's exhausted. Uh, Trump 
doesn't doesn't want to be somebody in in an election year that that puts the country back on um, you know a significant war footing. So I think that's a, a subset of that. But having said that, you know it, sometimes we lose sight of just how I don't want to say blinding, but how um, salient a country's own national politics become in a moment like this. And so I remember in the run-up, it's funny, you've just made me think of the run-up to the Iraq War in 2002 and 2003. We found it so unthinkable. I mean, even people like me who oppose the war, it seems so unthinkable that Saddam Hussein would bluff about having weapons of mass destruction when it was so clear that George W. Bush and the people in his administration were intent on taking that predicate and waging full-fledged war, you know, that went way beyond what Saddam Hussein uh, had gone through after the, you know, during the Persian Gulf War back in in 1991. And so we just thought, well, if he had weapons of mass destruction. Uh, or if he didn't have weapons of mass destruction, surely he would be advertising that through a back channel or publicly. What turns out, of course, he, he was thinking about his own audience, his domestic audience, his generals, you know, the people around him. And his domestic politics were much more salient to him. And whether that was also because he was surrounded by sycophants and, uh, you know, who told him that they, you know, that they could fight off the Satan or that, that in the end Bush would blink, who knows. Uh, but I just think it's an interesting analogy because here, uh, you know, you, you, the the supreme leader's, uh, you know, main constituency is 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 not really thinking about. You know, I'm sure I'm sure the supreme leader would love to be done with Donald Trump, but he's thinking about the balancing act that he has to strike between knowing the overwhelming force that the United States can bring to bear. Um, knowing uh, that uh, Trump Trump is himself not bounded either internally within the executive branch or legislatively because of the Republican enablers um, who seem very disinclined to challenge him on this or, or much of anything. And so, you know, I think Soleimani, the idea that he would be thinking, you know, Trump's vulnerable in 2020 of getting sucked into war. I think he's thinking they have taken out my number two. They have taken out a cult hero here. I, I have protests that I am both fueling, but also that are part of my politics that stretch 20 miles long, that are longer than anything in the modern history of my country. Um, you know, I have my own <laughs> my own internal dynamic to worry about. I I, I guess, and and I, I worry a little bit that that the American centered approach, which was uh, you know, or the Trump centered approach, would which would of course be Trump's approach, is saying to himself, "I'm deterring them. They're not going to want you know the this iron to be raining down on them from the, you know the superpower." And it's it's you know it's really complex. I mean, Saddam Hussein should not have wanted that either. Um, but when something this major transpires, uh, I, I, you know, I think the Ayatollah is is um, his calculus is is very indigenous to what is going to be about satiating his public, his politics. And I mentioned earlier again the largest protests in Iran. Uh, that had occurred in decades. I mean, probably since the Iranian Revolution, people think of it, the country was blacked out, so we don't have great insight into it. Um, but now he's got a different flank uh, to be thinking about and worried about. Uh, but it's a very militarized security establishment. So the, all of those factors, I think, are going to be a lot more salient than America's war fatigue. Right. No, I think that's really, thank you for that. That's important perspective. Um, it is interesting that Trump has you know, accomplished dividing our country and uniting Iran, but uh, be that as it may. I'm curious, um, what about the international response to date uh, to you has been notable? I was surprised, honestly, um, that the European leaders came out in the way that they did um, in a united way uh, on Monday of this week, uh, basically omitting mention of the Soleimani strike. And this was, I believe it was Merkel, Macron, and and Boris Johnson. Um, and, you know, laying the onus for de-escalation on Iran. That's not where their publics are. That's not where their press is. I mean, so that was, I thought, noteworthy and, and probably a reflection 
of their desire to show European unity and uh, reflection above all, I think, of Boris Johnson's influence on the statement because the the statements issued separately by the German and French government were uh, you know a little more hard hitting and 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 really calling on both parties, both the United States and Iran to to chill. Um, so that was noteworthy. Um, I mean, I think most uh, I would say also the fact that the Saudi government was sending a delegation uh, to Washington to urge, that cooler heads prevail. I thought there was some irony in that since it was the Saudi government, um, you know, that had done so much to uh, stoke Trump's appetite to blow up the Iranian nuclear deal, which again is where all of this escalatory cycle begins, where the rocket attacks on U.S. forces begin, uh, where Iran's own escalatory actions, you know, they see them as being in response to complying with the deal and then having all of these sanctions slapped back on them uh, despite uh, having complied. And so, I, you know, I think that that was interesting, noteworthy, I guess, that the Saudis are concerned about where this should go. Um, I think hearing that even the Israelis and Saudis and British were blindsided uh, by this attack. That that not even basic notifications were done. Just shows you what a what a sort of fire first, aim later uh, operation this was. I mean, that's no disrespect to the to the operators who who did the job that the commander in chief asked of them. But uh, but as in terms of uh, the strategic approach and and the uh, you know the kind of diplomacy and notification and coalition building you really would wish to do on the front end, but. But you haven't seen, you know, it's Trump and the United States are very powerful actors. So you have seen more muted responses, I think, than probably you would be seeing if, uh, if you had microphones in their in their private discussions. I mean, I think the unease behind the scenes is substantial, and people are just waiting to see where this goes, but also not interested in getting on tr- in Trump's uh, bad book. Just one follow-up there, Samantha. So, um, and obviously you're not in these rooms, so you're just trying to to interpret and read what you've seen. But in terms of that lack of notification of of some of our allies, do you think there was likely a discussion about that, like we should do that and Trump or someone else overruled? Or is basically things changed so much that, you know, that's just not the way they roll? It's just not even a discussion in the situation room. I don't know. I mean, I would say... Uh, in fairness, that I'm sure that this, there, there was the the overarching decision was made, I guess, by Trump at Mar-a-Lago, from what I understand, and then there would have it would have been a very compressed timeline, I suppose, in terms of operational implementation. Um, so that would have been my my speculation is that 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 the compressed timeline was a factor, but I would come back to where we started with just the sheer absence of process. I mean, there's just a a sort of template for how you do thing have done things over many many decades. We we the Obama administration inherited it from the Bush administration, which inherited it from the Clinton administration, so forth. And it gets refined and altered, and certainly. Um, in a context in which our politics is so polarized, um, if that process had existed, there would have been people raising concerns about notifying Democrats, I'm sure, you know, because everything is so political. Uh, but it's I don't think any of us have the sense that it even got to that point, that there was some discussion and it was, no, we can't trust these people. You know, I think that that template uh, just isn't really – because there's no process, there's also uh, not a lot of fidelity uh, to, to, to the template. And you know, it gets to the larger sort of feeling of impunity and the kind of the executive run amok. You know, there's always vulnerabilities in any White House to a concentration of executive power and a dismissiveness around checks and balances. And, you know, President Obama, of course, as a former constitutional law professor, was very alert to those vulnerabilities and and tried, um, you know, uh, in the context of the, the Syria red line episode to bring Congress into that and and tried, you know, at least to always offer legal rationales and to be transparent about legal rationales, particularly on issues like drone strikes. Um, where he knew that there, there was a great vulnerability in a system that that concentrated so much power in the national security establishment. Um, uh, you know, here there's there's not that sense of uh, internally 
um, that checks and balances are a good thing. There's a sense that you want to eschew uh, those shackles. And again, that that's dangerous inherently, as our founders understood. Um, and it, it, it moves us again in, in the very direction that the founders were most concerned about, you know, a kind of unaccountable, um, you know, monarch uh, or un- unaccountable individual. Um, but, but I think, you know, where in the national security realm it gets, it gets even more worrying is that one of the great predictors of whether you are going to be able to sustain an operation and also sustain domestic political support is whether or not you're able to, to bring allies to the table. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult when people, I mean, sort of foreign policy and national security are like human nature. If people don't feel included or respected, and this goes back to Trump's treatment of our allies, European allies in particular, more, more generally, but then when you turn around and say, okay, now we're in a in a hot situation here with Iran, or now our troops are getting expelled from Iraq, can you send more of yours? Or, um, you know, uh, can we share intelligence on on threats that might exist in your country? Never mind that I, if you're in Africa, I referred to your country as a shithole country not that long ago. I mean, this is where all of these other um, this sort of obliteration of soft power and the, these things that Trump would mock as 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 popularity contests around the world, but they're about storing up political capital that you can then draw upon because because Trump's uh, standing in so many countries is so low. If those countries are democratic, it it actually really constrains what a leader can do. Um, you know his or her flexibility. Um, you know in in respond being responsive to to U.S. coalition building if that's what it comes down to. Um, so you see, and again, a lot of this has not come home to roost yet. And as an American, I, I fervently hope it doesn't come home to roost that we're not in a situation where, uh, you know, our close friends turn their backs on us. I would hope we're not in a situation where we even need to call on them. Um, But what has been unleashed, you know, has been unleashed against a backdrop uh, without having made those investments in internal process or in reliable relationships. Um, And that makes this, this period feel, you know, quite isolating as well as dangerous. Right. So you mentioned, um, you know, one of the the most important things the founders tried to anticipate um, when they were thinking through the constitution and the development of the country was, you know, to avoid the unaccountable monarch. And I think that we're in an election year now formally in 2020. I think that's one of the big stakes in front of us because eight years of that um, versus four, I think, uh, is incredibly dangerous. So this situation with Iran is happening in the middle of a presidential election. It's starting to heat up a little bit. And I'm just curious, from your perspective, we have a number of Democratic candidates who are auditioning, yes, to be the Democratic nominee, but but also with Democratic voters and, and one of them eventually with the general electorate uh, to be commander in chief. So I'm curious, um, you know, Samantha, if you were advising one of these folks now, let's just like day to day. I mean, should they be doing briefings every day with their foreign policy advisors? Uh, you know, is it okay for them just to be following this, you know, sort of through news reports? I'm just curious what your advice would be there. I mean, I, one thing I'd add to that is in 2008, when Barack Obama was running for president, um, you know, the financial crisis um, really developed later in the campaign. And, you know, that was a, was obviously the harm it did the country. It was the most important, but it was challenging in the campaign because you still had to prosecute your campaign. But he wanted to be briefed every day. He was talking to Secretary Paulson every day. There was just an extra layer of complexity that was added there. So I'm just curious sort of operationally um, what your kind of uh, advice would be here. Well, just stepping back, I mean, it is striking – we we've talked already about the sort of fatigue, and we haven't really touched yet on on you know how that relates to the foreign policy posture, you know of of Trump apart from the Iran crisis, and nor uh, about how the candidates have related to that sort of feeling of fatigue. Um, but but the feeling of fatigue has manifested itself, at least from my perspective, in you know a real dearth of attention to some of the central 
foreign policy questions of our time, uh, whether you measure that in the number of debate minutes or debate questions that are dedicated to foreign policy issues, or just from what I gather from afar, the town halls and where the voters are at. And so, you know, there's been, it almost feels a little bit up to this point, it's been kind of pro forma. But then foreign policy and national security have a funny way of, you know, landing with a large thud um, in the center of the room. And, and we saw this on a couple occasions. I mean, the whole impeachment crisis, of course, is rooted in um, a foreign policy issue in its way, even if it's a reflection of, uh, you know, habits uh, that have played out domestically in all kinds of ways. Um, the abandonment of the Syrian Kurds, I think, was another time where the public tuned in and wanted to hear what the candidates had to say, and they they kind of stuck to the, the same playbook largely. Um, and then this really, I think, uh, is a moment in which the 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 divisions among um, at least you know the sort of moderate wing or between the moderate wing of the party and and let's call it the Sanders Warren wing th- that those divisions are now going to be accentuated and so may- maybe we can come back to that but I am struck that um, you know the the no matter no matter how hard the candidates might or how much the candidates and the voters might wish to focus on jobs and health care. The world just does not go away, and and certainly three years into a Trump administration, where where most crises have been of his own making, and this you could argue dating back to the disavowal of the Iran deal is also of his own making. The the, the escalatory cycle that has left us in this in this place, um, but you know this one is really I think useful in a way because it requires. I'm not saying that that we should applaud it for this reason, but. It, it has the opportunity now, just a few weeks uh, in advance of the caucus vote, to require the candidates to be more articulate, to to go a little deeper um, on what they mean, to, to, you know, there are nuances involved in positions in, in a context like this one, right? And I'm not saying that every voter is, needs to track the nuance, but I think some fluency um, is important. And for that reason, if to your question... Um, I would be urging the candidates to be immersing themselves um, in this issue less because they need to know the ins and outs of what the Supreme Leader said on a given day or what Boris Johnson, you know, how he's going to walk this tightrope um, in light of, you know, his, the British public's view of Trump, but also his desire to maintain a strong, not, not so much because of that, um, but because I think that, you know, at a at a top level, there are a set of issues that this crisis um, brings to the fore that really need to be a part of the debate, and and so and you you've seen Biden clearly energized by the new focus on foreign policy. Many of his ads, even in advance of this, of course, have been accentuating that dimension of his resume. You know, and and his you know chief argument that he's ready to be commander in chief on day one. That we don't we can't afford on the job training. I mean, because the Soleimani killing and whatever is coming next is going to accentuate just how messy the world is right now, um, you know, he sees that, of course, as something that draws attention back to the strongest feature of his resume, or at least one of the most distinguishing features of his resume. Sanders, you know, sees uh, this also as energizing of his longstanding deep, deep skepticism of war, whether going back to the Vietnam War, the uh, Iraq War, of course, uh, where he sees a a great vulnerability for Joe Biden. Um, And above all, the kind of militarization of our foreign policy. He's he's really tried to bone up on on foreign policy, I think, since he ran the last time and has tried, instead of looking like he's just a a left-wing version of a Trump isolationist nationalist, he's tried to emphasize diplomacy at the core of an engaged America. Um, sometimes it doesn't it doesn't feel like his heart is fully fully in that uh, account, but this is an occasion uh, to tell us what would diplomacy look like if you were president, you know, in the wake of something like this. And I mean, God knows uh, answering that question would be very challenging even for the most experienced diplomats. I think Pete has a chance to, and, and you've seen him do this already, draw on his own biography as the only person who's actually of the of the final four, shall we call them? You know, who's who's served in a war zone. I, I heard him say something about, you know, he took the issue of contingencies and and thinking ten steps ahead and said, look, 
as an intelligence officer in Afghanistan, these are the questions we asked before every decision we made, you know, even at a tactical level. And so drawing on that biography, and, and this is where Warren, you know, that doesn't yet, it doesn't feel like she has yet found, you know, what is her signature dimension of this, or how can she show a fluency, at least with an aspect of foreign policy, I think, where she's going with this, it looks like so far is, hmm, the timing is a little suspicious. Uh, you know, this looks like, uh, oh, she hasn't said this outright, but but a, a diversion from impeachment, and then and then sort of use that to come back to corruption and, and those issues. But I think, you know, it, there's only a month left, and and we don't know enough about what these candidates uh, think about foreign policy. Uh, we 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 have we have the basic contours, but I think I think to drill into this could yield some important differentiation. Well, the debate next week I think is a good opportunity. I I very much agree with your view that um, is unfortunate uh, the situation we find ourselves in. It it does provide the opportunity, and I view this less as a Democrat than as an American. I hope one of these people ends up as the president. And the truth is, you know, um, their domestic and and legislative agenda, I hope a lot of it succeeds, but, you know, that's somewhat um, in their control, somewhat out of it. But, but, you know, every president, um, the the place where they ultimately have the better ability to make their mark is in foreign policy and in situations like this. So I think we all need to to listen closely. I'm curious, um, you know, just because this is potentially going to be a very fluid situation. So you mentioned, you know, the, the the leading candidates have all staked out some initial response to this with some division, which I think, you know, is a debate our party needs to have. But this will be a very fluid situation, potentially. Maybe it won't be. Maybe it'll be quieter than, than folks think. But, you know, if we're in a situation three weeks from now where there's massive cyber attacks that could uh, affect our economy or our transportation or, or power infrastructure, uh, if we get into more formalized conflict from a military standpoint, I mean, how would you evaluate that, which is, I think the backdrop is the backdrop, which is Democratic primary voters and general election voters are very war-weary. Uh, there's no doubt that if we end up in any of those more more um, distressing situations, you know, it's Trump's fault. You know, he made decisions starting with the Iran deal that led to that. But, you know, when we get into those situations with Iran, you know, you might see a little bit of change in the public's view, which is they're still war-weary they still might think Trump, um, you know, made some mistakes in terms of his decisions. But ultimately, now we're we're facing Iran, whether that be cyber or 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 from a more traditional standpoint. And you know, how do candidates think about the fluidity of this situation? Where I'm not suggesting the politics could change completely, but you know, there's going to be nuance here as well. Absolutely. I mean, I um, I think you've even seen that up to this point on the Soleimani killing. I mean, it it, it is. Absolutely, the case that this individual, um, you know, was in in terms of his building of a network of Shia militia and instructing that network to target U.S. forces. You know, it's it's a tricky message for, especially for for a swing voter, I assume, right? Of on the one hand, he's got blood on his hands. On the other hand, Trump should have notified Congress and allies and, you know, why isn't he thinking through consequences? And so even even in this initial phase where it was done about as shoddily, it seems, and as in um, considerate of consequences as one could imagine, and that's out there in the public domain, it's still – it's already a messaging challenge. Well, imagine now if you see something, as you say, retaliatory – there, there is usually uh, a rally around the flag effect, and if Americans are targeted, it'll be you know it requires a, a number of paragraphs to describe the timeline that that gets you to that point. Um, and we will be citizens, all of us, and worried about Americans, our diplomats, our uh, you know our citizens, our, our commercial interests. I mean, anybody abroad, pe- people in this country, and so, so I, I think that that is going to be uh, quite challenging. I think that, on the other hand, um, you know, there are going to be dimensions of Trump's leadership in any crisis, however it unfolds, that are familiar, uh, a kind of recklessness, right, in terms of uh, how he approaches a crisis, Uh, usually a great regard for himself over uh, and a privileging of his own self-interest over that of the country. Um, I think there will be different ways in which America's, the, the sort of 
us being isolated is likely to surface. There might be some opportunities for contrast between, for example, when ISIS ascended and Obama um, and and his administration were able to pull together a 75-plus nation coalition to fight ISIS. You know, there may be some point of contrast here where you see far fewer takers uh, because of a sense of how this has gone down over time. Um, and then just the core inconsistency between Trump's stated uh, desire to be the uh, another president who gets us out of wars. That was, of course, Obama's uh, mantra as well. Uh, but his desire to end the forever wars and then, then him than him putting the country and our, our young men and women who are, as he himself says, so exhausted, who've been away from their families so many years over these last decades, some of them on their seventh tours of different places. You know, it, it's it's too much. And yet here we go again, 3,500 troops sent, uh, you know, to to the, the region, 20,000 net so far, how many more in the light of the crisis that comes? So... I think what we have to be very careful about is just making sure that our message is what I think it is rooted in, which is a concern for the lives of Americans. And and if for some reason it looks like, uh, you know, any any candidate or any commentator for that matter is exploiting this to say, oh, it's Trump's fault and losing sight of the, the human stakes – uh, for the people involved, that would be that would be a shame. But I, you know, I don't think there's there's much of a danger of that. But but there there absolutely, I think I think to to think that if this goes, if this tumbles into something far bigger than Trump that that than Trump intended, that that necessarily benefits uh, Democrats who who have criticized Trump on foreign policy grounds. I think I think that it's far too soon to know that, and I would be, I would be skeptical because the vulnerability of Americans, the very vulnerability that Trump may have wrought, uh, is one that that makes us, uh, you know, uh, band together. I mean, I mean, I, and on on one level, that should be the case, right? But it's just it 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 you you'd be the expert on how, in a tight and pithy way. They can pull back. These candidates can pull back from whatever the calamities are that that ensue to the original sins uh, at the heart of this, and that will include talking about Iran's, you know, transgressions and its crimes. Uh, but but fundamentally, the the recklessness of this, the lack of thinking through consequences. I mean, in some ways you can you can go right also to the trade war. You know, you you want it's an expressive. And, there, and there's some, even something worthy behind the trade war in terms of standing up for the American worker. But who has paid the price? Look at U.S. manufacturing. Look at the tariffs and how those costs have been borne by Americans. Some, you know, the, a crisis like this will have more, even more dire life and death consequences potentially. Well, I think I think that's right. Whether it's the trade wars, I think you know, getting out of the Paris Climate Accords, this situation where you know we may end up quite lonely. Um, I do think that the American people do not like us to be. Um, this is where I think sometimes the political commentary is wrong. I think the average, particularly swing voter, doesn't like us to be alienated from the rest of the world. They understand that that's not good for America, it's not safe, and ultimately we've got to solve these problems together. So I think that's a great vulnerability, and I think no matter where this goes, I think we have to um, you know, lay this on his reckless behavior and decision and self-interest, as you put it. By the way, I'd love to have – I don't think Trump's been, ever been asked like, Mr. President, will you tell us the difference between Sunni and Shia? Um, which, of course, Ooh. is at the root of so much of this. I, I don't think you'd handle it. So, Samantha, we've really, I think, we're all going to benefit greatly from your perspective. Uh, but before I let you go, I'd like, you know, you wrote a remarkable book, The Education of an Idealist. For anyone listening uh, who's not uh, purchased the book and read it, I highly encourage you uh, to read it. You know, you spent a lot of time out on the road, uh, both here in America and, and around the world, on your book tour. I'm just curious um, – what you took from those discussions, obviously you talked about your book, but you probably was a great window into what people are concerned about, what they're optimistic about. I'm just curious to hear your perspective, you know, having having talked to tens of thousands of, of people in, in, in the recent months, <laughs> um, you know, what that what that experience was like, what you learned from it. Yeah, it's a great question. And I should reflect uh, more on it here in the new year. Um, I'd say let me I'd just say a word about what I experienced internationally and then come back to to the America that I saw for what it's worth. Um, 
internationally, you know, I, I can't say I did a, a global tour, but I was just in countries like Australia, the United Kingdom, of course, my native Ireland. Um, and I'm really struck uh, by the hedging that is going on. In other words, the, you know, not a sense of waiting, not a sense of, okay, let's see how 2020 plays out. <clears throat> and then hopefully America, the America we knew and loved will be back. You know, much more, I mean, Australia is the obvious case because of its proximity to China and China's vast influence, um, but a real reticence about criticizing China, a sense that America, you know, maybe exiting in a very gradual way from the region uh, in a more lasting way. I mean, including, you know, the sense comes also from studying uh, some of the statements from various Democratic presidential candidates. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, an unfortunate conflation, and this will come to the segue to the domestic impressions I have as well, but an unfortunate conflation in certain quarters between the kind of broadly shared skepticism about the over-reliance on military force in U.S. foreign policy, a conflation of that, of the recognition of that fatigue and that lesson learning uh, with a kind of sense that that means if America's tired of using military force, that just must mean America's tired of leading. Uh, a real sense that those two things kind of go together, and that's that's really unfortunate, right? That that's the impression that other countries could have. And you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time overseas just just fighting back and say, look, actually, you know, look at the Paris Climate Agreement. It it grew out of a bilateral agreement between the U.S. and China. It's not enough, of course, but that's called leadership. That's going to China first, getting them to make a set of concessions they'd never been willing to make before, and then multilateralizing that, getting other countries to pile on. Look at the response to Ebola. That was actually the U.S. US military involved, along with our public health uh, heroes and champions who deployed into the heart of an epidemic. That's leadership. We use the US deployment to, to build a huge coalition. ISIS, I already mentioned, more than 75 countries as part of that coalition, which involved training, media, fighting ISIS over the media airwaves, um, reconstruction, demining, you know, even, even some of the sort of perceived hard power kinds of crises that will confront uh, the United States and other countries are ones that can't be dealt with with military force uh, alone. Um, and and sort of reminding people of the, the the toolbox that the United States and other countries have at their disposal and and not to think that just because America um, has wearied substantially from wars that haven't paid the dividends that that the American people were promised and wars that have gone on too long, uh, that that means that the United States uh, can can af afford to to step back from from a catalytic role um, in pulling particularly the democracies of the world together to deal with crises that aren't going to go away if we retreat. So I was really struck by I don't want to say that people have given up on the United States, but they they have a sense of America in a broader retreat than um, and I'm generalizing, of course, there are many exceptions, but a broader retreat than one that relates to military force. Um, and so I think this is where, again, hearing from Democratic candidates about just what U.S. leadership looks like that isn't over-militarized, um, that does more burden sharing, that isn't about being the world's policeman, but that does recognize that a China-led world order uh, is probably not going to be con one consistent with our values or our interests and, and sort of what, what that means, uh, even if it also includes, of course, cooperating with China on, on key issues. So that's internationally. Um, domestically, uh, I guess I, I, I think about it more from a micro standpoint, but what I found above all, David, and you, you know, you'll go on your book tour in a couple months, and I'm I'm really curious what you will find. But I found these the, the sort of dueling impulses in people. On the one hand, feeling more, I mean, many of them characterizing that they were more politically engaged than they had been in their lifetimes, and yet more daunted by the scale of what was confronting us, and 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 so and so kind of. Not not paralyzed, but like on the fence, you know. And so when when I have this expression that I come back to, it's not mine, from a couple um, professors uh, who wrote the book Switch, a wonderful book, and it's it's the idea of shrinking the change. I write about it in the book of, you know, when you're feeling overwhelmed by climate change or by the refugee crisis or by, uh, you know, even political polarization, you know, finding some small thing that you can do that just shrinks 
what it is you're talking about, just to take a tiny slice of the larger issue. And instead of thinking, I have to solve the Australian brush fires today, and and if I don't have a solution for that, uh, and uh, you know, then I'm then why, why bother? Why get out of bed? I'll just watch Sports Center, which is how I think a lot of people feel. Um, and so shrinking the change, I think, become you know, ended up being something that a lot of people that I engage with really seized upon, because they're that the problems are just feeling big and beyond us. Um, and and of course, polarization is is the most frontal and uh, of those or most foundational because that is the one that people just keep coming back to. So even if you have an answer about how, for example, we would get things back on track in the Middle East with Iran, let's say, or what a Paris 2.0 would look like, the, the, the first thing that comes up is, yeah, but what about polarization? And then, and then, uh, you know, and that, and that is the heart. I mean, I, I know you struggle with this as well. That is the hardest uh, foundational concern. I think it's the biggest national security. Uh, people ask me on the road, what, what do you, what is the biggest national security risk, biggest national security threat that we're not talking about? You know, expecting I'm going to say Yemen or you know Iran or or before we were talking about Iran or the, or the biggest national security crisis or the Uyghurs or you know that we're not talking enough about. And I'll just say polarization, political polarization. But but to give people a pathway out of that is really challenging. Um, and and the only way to do so really is to say, look, elect people who you think actually want to come up with solutions and not just uh, you know and not just throw you know cast stones and and point fingers and and score political points. I mean that that you know the only answer at this point, since the Supreme Court has punted on gerrymandering, uh, you know, is getting out the vote and putting people in office who are going to take on the problems that right now where our, our mechanisms for solutions feel, you know, as if they've ground to a halt. But I, I think that, that meeting people where they are and reminding them that there is something you can do, that it may feel incommensurate uh, to what you see on the news, but it is if every, if every person who feels the way you do, uh, more politically unhappy uh, or dissatisfied, feeling underrepresented in terms of your values, uh, you know, at the highest levels, or even in your community, you know, there are there are these steps that you can take, and they will feel small. But if each of us simply, as we know from the Obama insurgent campaign, that 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 no one other than you, and and perhaps the candidate, I'm not even sure about the candidate, believed would, would could work, you know, it was those those little sort of acts of courage and those the, the the sort of refusal to be daunted by the scale of the challenge that made possible. Uh, you know, a set of changes that back then nobody nobody thought possible, and and so that's I I felt in the country that 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 insecurity almost about one's own difference making potential and 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 needing to meet people there. I think that's a great takeaway and perspective, and I I love your emphasis on shrinking the change because I agree with that very much. I think that people's inclination to be active in politics, whether that's national or local or in civic institutions, is high. But but there is a barrier, I think, for a lot of people. Um, almost um, maybe defeat, defeatism is too is too strong a word. But I understand that, and and there's no doubt that if if we're successful at beating Trump and we, you know, maintain control of the House and win state legislatures and maybe even win the Senate, um, it's not like you know all of a sudden problems right. go away. We're still going to have all of them, <laughs> right. and we know the Republicans are less interested in government activism and cooperation. So, but but the only opportunity we have, I think, to really um, you know, not just thrive, but survive is we, we can't have eight years of Trump. And so I think we all have to understand what is it we can control? We're not the candidate. We're not the media, yeah. you know, um, but what piece of this can we control? And, and I think you're focused on shrinking that change. So, you know, three hours of volunteerism or posting an interesting piece of content on social media, maybe that's not going to solve climate change, but but it but it will give us the opportunity to win, uh, which gives us the best opportunity. So I, I think that is really, really important. I think hearing from you, I'm sure, was impactful to people that, 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 that kind of thought about that. Okay, this is manageable. Because I think if, if, if enough Americans don't do that, sort of figure out how do they approach shrinking the change. So what's my plan to defeat Trump? We're not going to win. Um, and, you know, he's got a lot of advantages, incumbency, Fox News, that entire ecosystem, the Electoral College. Um, and I think what we have is us. 
Uh, and if, if enough of us figure out how to shrink that change and, and do what's in our control, then I think we can win a really tough race. But um, I think you really nailed it. Um, and I understand where people are coming from. Mm. The challenges are dawning. They know the Republicans are not going to change overnight. Um, you know, a lot of Republicans won't accept an outcome where Trump doesn't uh, win re-election. We know all that. But all we can control is how do we give ourselves the best right. opportunity? <laughs> and and that requires the kind of activism you talked about. So um, obviously folks loved reading your book and, and your lessons uh, about genocide and foreign policy. But I also think that sense of, of optimism and perspective you gave folks is, is incredibly important. Thank you, David. Samantha Power, thanks for being with us. And uh, spring training will be here before you know it, and your Red Sox will turn things around <laughs> and beat the evil empire, which uh, is something uh, you and I both violently uh, agree with and hope will happen. And they just get more evil every offseason. How does that keep happening? Yeah, I know. I know. But, you know, <laughs> the Astros are good, good. The Nationals are good. The Red Sox are coming back. But uh, we shall see. You know, the truth is you don't want the Yankees to be underdogs. You want them to be overdogs, and that's where we're of the season again. That's true. That's true. No truer words than that were spoken. And uh, thanks for doing what you do, David. We're we're uh, we feel better that you're out there helping some of these. Uh, I hope helping. I hope they at least read your book, The Candidates. What's your title again? Citizen's Guide to Defeating Donald Trump. Yes. So uh, it's really kind of it's directly related to what you raised, which is, you know, what is it that that is in your control? Love right? that. And so what I try and, and approach it is, why is it as important having run presidential campaigns? Like, why is an individual doing anything important? And just, I won't have all the ideas, but, you know, making sure people understand the entire sort of um, set of possibilities for their involvement. Um, and and it's and it's it's broader than most people think. Um, I know when I told Hillary Clinton this directly when I saw her not too long ago. Like one of my reflections is, I'm, I'm sure in, in 2016 when I would post on Twitter or Facebook, I think all I did was harangue Trump. Mm. And you know, I didn't post you know her college you know savings plan or mm. her plan for healthcare. And so I think we all have an obligation also to make the positive case because they have a huge advantage. So, but thank you for raising that. Well, Samantha, thank you. Um, for your leadership uh, and your wisdom and for being with us today. Thank you so much, David. Take care. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, Samantha was, as I expected, uh, brilliant in her both analysis of the situation uh, as it stands now and where it could go. You know, I, I loved the fact that she went deep on process, which I know is not as sexy as a lot of the other issues that get covered. but. But ultimately, Trump's lack of real good process in the White House, in the Situation Room, scenario planning, you know, does he have people who will stand up to him? You know, all of that should scare us, quite frankly, because um, this is clearly someone who's flying by the seat of their pants and is not relying on the type of advisors and the type of process that we historically have had. You know, I thought it was fascinating. Samantha clearly is a student of Donald Trump's psych psyche and, and understanding um, particularly heading into an election, um, the types of pitfalls he wants to avoid. So even though he might have triggered a war, let's hope he didn't, um, uh, obviously he wants to run as sort of an anti-war candidate who and president who understands the fatigue. So it would be fascinating to see if, if Iran factors that into any of their decision-making. As Samantha rightly points out, while they could probably take advantage of that, uh, you know, they have their own, own national interest uh, and political interest that they need to factor in. And I thought it was really interesting to hear her talk about these candidates, which is to understand that this is a fluid situation and that that even though uh, if, if we get into a lot of retaliatory uh, situations from Iran, uh, you know, whether they be solely cyber uh, we get into attacks on Americans here and on foreign soil, whether we get into what we all hope doesn't happen, another Mideast war. Trump obviously bears uh, full and complete responsibility for that. Um, but, you know, Americans do tend to rally the, around the flag. So um, her thoughts about how candidates need to factor that into their thinking as they respond to these events, I, I think, was really interesting. So we'll be talking to you next week. We'll obviously spend some time talking about the aftermath of Tuesday's debate. And we are going to go uh, deep into Iowa next week. So really hope you join us next week. And uh, Happy New Year. And uh, all of you out there, I hope you are thinking about what you can individually do uh, in the general election. So even though the general election may not be formally engaged for a few months now, you know, what kind of financial support can you give to our nominee? 
What kind of volunteer support can you give? What kind of social media support can you give? Can you travel to a battleground state? If you're in a battleground state, can you become a volunteer leader? So the time is, is upon all of you and all of us to think about what we can do uh, to remove the menace and threat from the White House. So talk to you next week.